Recently, I've been reading a book entitled Think Again by Adam Grant. And in it, he tells a fascinating story about a lady named Ursula Meiss. Ursula lived in Austria back in the late 1880s. She came to see her doctor, a Gabriel Anton. She came complaining of headaches and, and neck aches and back aches, but she really presented a very challenging case for him to diagnose. No, he began trying to examine her and, and asking questions, and what he found was she was a seamstress. She still had her dexterity. She could still use scissors to cut. She had the ability to talk about her house, describe it, to talk about her pets. No, she was very alert. At the same time, um, she was complaining that she couldn't find a bottle of water beside her bed, that she couldn't find the door to her bedroom, that she was running into furniture. And he asked her, he said, is your eyesight okay? Yes, yes, I see perfectly fine. He went and got a red ribbon and some scissors and placed the objects in front of her and said, would you describe these objects? She couldn't do it. He began doing additional tests and what he was able to ascertain was that her vision was just all but gone. She had severely impaired vision that would ultimately lead to complete blindness but the more he questioned, are you sure you can see? Absolutely, I can see just fine. And Dr. Anton would ultimately conclude and say, this lady had a mental block. She was blind to her blindness. That's not the first time that we know that that's ever happened. There's lots of recorded incidents in different places around the world, literally going all the way back to the time of Jesus, where people were blind to their blindness. It was Adam Grant who would ultimately write and say, we all have blind spots in our knowledge and opinions. The bad news is they can leave us blind to our blindness, which gives us false confidence in our judgment and prevents us from rethinking. Rethinking isn't, isn't a struggle in every part of our lives. When it comes to our possessions, we update with fervor. We refresh our wardrobes when they go out of style, and we renovate our kitchens when they are no longer in vogue. When it comes to our knowledge and opinions, though, we tend to stick to our guns. Psychologists call this seizing and freezing. We favor the comfort of conviction, over the discomfort of doubt, and we let our beliefs get brittle long before our bones. We laugh at people who still use Windows 95, yet we still cling to opinions that we formed in 1995. We listen to views that make us feel good and ideas that, rather than ideas, that make us think hard. Once we hear a story and accept it as true, we rarely bother to question it. To be blind to our blindness. To forget how important it is to rethink. To think again about some of our basic opinions and beliefs. 
This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, In the Room Where It Happened. It is our sermon series for the season of Lent, preparing us for Easter. And we wanted to have this sermon series because right now you and I are living at a fascinating time. We're coming towards the end of a pandemic. Here we are announcing next week we're going to start meeting again in person. What you see is all kinds of declines in the number of new cases, hospitalizations, deaths. A third vaccine has now been approved. Millions of vaccinations are going out. No, every single day I either read an article or I see a news story and they're talking about how this is coming to an end and the question is how soon can we return to normal? Nobody knows that. But we want to take the time to ask the question, is that really what we want? To return to normal. To return to the way that it was before we went through this traumatic experience. Or as we've gone through this traumatic experience, has this become a time to really examine and to see our blind spots? Is this a time to rethink some of our opinions and our beliefs. So that when we come to this other side, we have a new normal, a better normal, rather than going back to the way that it was. Now we've said the way we want to get at that is we're going to look each week at a disciple. At a disciple who was there in the upper room to celebrate the Last Supper. It was the room where it happened. We're going to look at those people who were in that room when Jesus announced his betrayal because his betrayal would change their lives forever. They were the ones who were there when there was Jesus washing their feet. They were there to receive communion for the very first time. They were there to hear his teachings. We want to take a moment and go back and look at what was their like, life like before and then what was their life going to be like after after they would go through this Last Supper and this upper room, after they would go through a night in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is betrayed, and then there would be the torture and the trial, and then a crucifixion, and Jesus laid in the tomb, and then a resurrection. On the other side of this traumatic experience, would they go back to normal? Or because of their experience with Christ, would there be a new normal? I said each week what we're going to do is we're going to look at the painting by Leonardo da Vinci, The Last Supper. That has to be one of the most famous paintings in uh, uh, Christendom that is of a religious nature. He painted it between 1495 and 1498 there in Milan, Italy at a monastery. It was painted high up on the wall in a dining room. I pointed out last week when you start looking at this painting of the Last Supper, you see that Leonardo put Jesus right in the center, larger than everyone else. And then to one side, he had a group of three, and then another group of three. Then there's Jesus, then another group of three, and another group of three. Last week, we looked at the trio on the far um, left, and we looked at the disciple Andrew. This week, I want to look at the trio on the far right. And the trio on the far right is made up of Thaddeus, Matthew, and Simon. Now, 
I had already decided I wanted to use Matthew and Simon together for one of my Sunday morning sermons. And when I saw the painting, I thought it was fascinating that Leonardo had chosen to paint those two men in this small group of three sitting together at the supper. Matthew, the tax collector, Simon, the zealot. You couldn't have two men who were more different, who looked at the world differently and despised each other than those two. Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. We read in our scripture lesson this morning, he was sitting at the table collecting taxes. Tax collectors were despised by the people. You heard it read, sinners and tax collectors. That's the category you fell into. You were the bottom of the social heap. You see, what happened when the Romans would come in, they would designate an area and think, how much money should we get from that area? You would then have a chief tax collector. We've all read stories about Zacchaeus, the little man who ran to get up in a sycamore tree. He was a chief tax collector who would then get other tax collectors and they would then be responsible for a smaller area and you had a number you had to collect. And whatever number you collected above that, you got to keep. Well, tax collectors had now collaborated with Rome, the enemy. You cooperated with them and you were cheating the people out of money. I mean, there was every reason to despise them. That's who Matthew was. Matthew, the tax collector. He was someone who obviously knew how to read, how to write, which turned out to be very helpful for someone who wanted to write down the stories of Jesus to be read for thousands of years to come. Jesus invited Matthew, the tax collector, come, follow me. He invited Simon, the zealot, to come follow him. Now, the zealots, the zealots were people who were passionately patriotic and religious. Their commitment was to Israel. Their commitment was to overthrow the Roman government and reestablish Israel. When you became a zealot, you took an oath. We have one king, it's the Lord. Tem the only tax is the temple tax. The only friends you can have are zealots. They were very religious and they hated the Romans. We read a scripture this morning where Jesus is on the night of the Last Supper talking about, do you have a sword? It's a very strange passage, but it says suddenly, they said, yes, here's two swords, Lord. Well, we know Peter would have had one sword. He's about to go to the garden, cut off the high priest's slave's ear. We believe the other sword would have been carried by Simon the Zealot. Zealots all carried swords beneath their robe. So that at any moment when it became an opportunity, they could participate in an assassination. Now there are two swords. Simon Peter and Simon the Zealot. That's the kind of person that he was. And how did a zealot feel about a tax collector? They were just as bad or worse than the Romans. I think it is so fascinating that Jesus would go out and choose two men that he knew were diametrically opposed to each other, despised each other, and invite those two men to be a part of his inner circle. Matthew, come. Simon, come. 
And here we get to this painting by Leonardo da Vinci, and he has the two of them choosing to sit down together and have dinner, the Last Supper, together. To be able to pull people together, people who don't think or look alike. You know, before the pandemic, you and I were living in a time when already we were so much being broken into smaller groups. There has been such a division among people. It's them versus us. We had become so much into our own little camps, our own little tribes, and we spoke so poorly about everybody else who was in a different tribe, a different camp. During this pandemic, you know, it's been so easy for us to isolate, to live in our own silo. You choose which station you want to watch of 24-hour news, and you watch it and they tell you exactly what you want to hear, and it is meant to rile you up. And then we can go on our computers, and if you search for news, your search engine learns which stories you want to read. Your search engine learns the kinds of stories you're looking for, and that's what it begins to feed to you for your news feed. You will always be hearing the very things that you are thinking and the people who think like you. And so then you and I are able to choose our friends who look and act and think just like us. If we're not careful, this has been a time when it has been so easy to just become a small, siloed, separated group. But is that really what we want? Is that the normal we want to go back to? Or is there a new normal? I think about how Jesus called Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, two totally different people together, to see if they, as a part of his inner circle, could come to respect and to love each other. Is that possible for us to do as well? How did Jesus do that with Simon and with Matthew? How does Jesus do it with us? That's what I want us to think about this morning, and I just want to share with you three ideas. First of all, I think for Jesus, he, he came to teach them that they stood in the need of God's grace. And God's grace was available to all. To think that Christ comes to teach us that we all stand in the need of God's grace. And God's grace is available to all. Last Saturday, I had a wonderful time. Marsh and I got on a Zoom call and we were being able to talk with our sister church in Ulyanovsk, Russia. To see all of these people who are friends, people we've come to know and love on the other side of the world. And just to be able to share and through a translator tell stories. It was so incredibly heartwarming. I mean, you remember this June, it'll have been 29 years ago that there were 40 people from here at St. Luke's who traveled literally to the other side of the world to go to Ulyanov, Russia, the birthplace of Vladimir Lenin. Now, I have to say, honestly, I, I remember when we were getting ready to go, I was, I was a little anxious. 
The Soviet Union collapsed officially on December the 31st, 1991. This was less than six months later, we were now gonna go travel to this disintegrated Soviet Union, now Russia. I'd grown up during the 50s and the 60s in the height of the Cold War. I grew up in a time when there was the Cuban Missile Crisis when we came so close to destroying the world with nuclear weapons. I grew up in a time when Nikita Khrushchev came to the UN and took off his shoe and beat on the podium saying, we're going to bury you Americans. I grew up in a time when I was going to elementary school and they would have bomb drills. You had to go out into the hallway and put your head down and learn how to cover up. They taught us how to get under our desk and to cover up. And we were clear, who did we have to be afraid was going to bomb us? It was the Russians. Now, it was Ronald Reagan who came along later and would say, they are the evil empire. If you thought about people that you had to fear, the people you disliked, the people you could not trust, it was the Russians. And now... In June of 1992, we were going to hop on a plane and fly to Russia to go stay in people's homes, to get to know them, and then bring them to our home. I was so afraid this was going to be very uncomfortable and a disaster, but it seemed like the right thing to do. And I felt that God was leading us to go do this, and we went and stayed in their homes. We ate with them. They treated us with such hospitality and such love and kindness. We met their friends. We went to their parties. We had conversations. We would bring them here and they would come to church. It would be life-changing for each of us and for them. And through the years, hundreds of people have now made that journey to Ulyanovs to stay in homes, to make new friends, to be able to make their own memories. It was an incredible time. But you know, on that first trip, one of the things we did was we held a worship service. No one had to come, but we invited our own guest, our host. And then we put up some flyers inviting any stranger who wanted to come. We found a government building we could hold a worship service in. A government building. Six months before, that would have been illegal. We brought with us cases of Bibles, all in Cyrillic. All were for Russians. We'd had them here at the church and told you, why don't you highlight your favorite verses? You were able to do it by counting out how many books this is. You couldn't recognize probably the name. You then were able to read the numbers. And you could highlight it. And we were going to hand these out to whoever came to the worship service who probably never had a Bible in their life. And you know, I struggled with what do you go and preach when you get one opportunity to preach to people who hadn't been allowed to go to church in 70 years. What do you say? As you can imagine, I decided to tell two stories. I decided to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, the story that's going to be about how Jews and Samaritans could love and help each other, even though they were supposed to hate each other. And then the story of the prodigal son, the story of the boy who took his inheritance, went into a faraway country, squandered it, wasted it all, found himself starving to death and wanted to come home. He was going to come home and say, I'm not worthy to be your servant, your son. Take me as a servant. 
But the father ran down the road and threw his arms around his son's neck and said, put a, put a robe on his back and put shoes on his feet and a ring on his hand and kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party because my son was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he's found. I want them to hear that message of God's grace for all. What we did was we had everybody, we had people stand up and read the scripture in English. And then we had a person stand and read it in Russian. We had passed out the Bible so everybody could open their Bible to where they were told and read the story at the same time as the person was reading the Bible in Russian. When the service was over, I went down and I was greeting people with an interpreter. It was such a powerful night, one of the most spiritual, powerful nights in my life. And I remember a man who came up to me, must have been in his 60s or 70s, 30 years ago that seemed old. He came up to me and, and through an interpreter he said, All my life I have been told that I am bad and I am going to hell. I've never heard this story before. If I had not read it with my own eyes, I would not have believed it. But this story changes everything. It does. It changes everything. It's why we were there. When you realize that you stand in the need of God's grace, and then you also know God's grace is offered not only to you, but to all. Matthew and Simon the Zealot, they had been following Jesus. They heard Jesus tell these stories. They saw the way that Jesus treated those who were considered unrighteous and unclean, the poor, the powerless, the cast-offs. They had felt convicted in their own selves. After living with Jesus for three years, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Zealot, they knew they stood in the need of God's grace. But they'd come to understand it was a grace that was offered to everybody. It had become so hard to stand in judgment over people who thought and looked different from you. Secondly, I think Jesus chose Matthew and Simon into his group because he wanted them to get to know the other person individually. You know, it was very easy for Matthew, the tax collector, to despise all zealots for the way that they're so fervent in their, their patriotism and their religious ideas. It was so easy for the zealots to truly hate the tax collectors because they had sided with Rome. But it's a different thing when you get to know an individual and you know their name and their face and their story. And over the last three years, they had come to know each other's name, face, and their story. And that's why da Vinci paints them sitting together there for the Last Supper. Because they'd come to know each other. And you change the way you look and treat people when you come to know them. You and I live in a time where we don't have to get to know people who are different from us. 
we can live isolated and separated and hear only the stories we want to hear. It's really pretty easy to separate from everybody else and only be with those that, you, that think like you and look like you. Do you remember it was years ago we had Erin Gruwell come? She is a teacher out in California, out in L.A. She had gone to go teach there in a difficult, difficult part of L.A. years ago now. She went there and all the students she received, she was told by the time they're juniors, they will either be in prison, pregnant, or dead. None of them will graduate. She didn't believe that. And she began to work with them and and a whole different kind of a curriculum to try to help them learn and grow. And these kids who came from the most challenging situations, and all of them were in gangs, found a way to have a vision beyond that, and they would go do amazing things. Well, we brought Aaron here, and we brought 20-plus of these kids. They were called Freedom Writers here. And they came, you know, their story's been made into a movie. Hilary Swank played Aaron Gruel in the show. But we, we brought these kids here and we met with them on Saturday to hear their stories and talk to them individually. They stayed in our homes. You got to know them. They got to know you. They were amazing. But what happened was, as we got to know these kids, we came to see they were such really wonderful people who had had such challenges but now had such dreams. It changed the way that we would be looking at kids who are coming from these places in Los Angeles who had been in gangs. But we also did something for them. They had never stayed in homes like our homes. Every single one of us looked like we lived in a different planet from them. We looked so wealthy. No, you took such good care of them. You were so kind to them. You went out of your way to love on them. And I remember Aaron coming and telling me how the kids had come to her and said, we didn't know that rich white people could be so nice. They had their own prejudice, just as we can have prejudice, until you put out the effort to come to know a name and a face and a story, and it changes how you look at each other. What if this year, as you and I are going to the other side of the pandemic, we decided we don't want to go back to normal and just live with our own. We want to put out the effort to put ourselves in the place where we come to know other people who are different. When was the last time you got to know someone who's of a different race than you? When have you sat down and talked to a Muslim, a Jew, a Catholic or a Baptist or Church of Christ? If you're straight, when was the last time you talked to somebody who was gay? Have you talked to people who are homeless? You know, we were just seeing Neighborhood Services Organization. You can volunteer there and come to know people who have a whole different world than you have. You can be a mentor when we open back up and we start going and mentoring at elementary schools. You can volunteer at El Sistema, our after-school music program. You can be a part of Remerge. 
reemerge this incredible program that has women, young women who are mothers, and they're going to be going to jail because probably some sort of a drug offense, and they get this opportunity to get into a program, and it changes their life. You know, you can be a part of Cleats for Kids and Fields and Futures and so many places where you can go and come to know people who are different from you. And they're no longer just a category. They're a name and a face and a story. It helps us to see our blind spots and where we are prejudiced. It breaks my heart to see how people are responding to Asians right now. We all ought to take it upon ourselves to try to affirm and to encourage people who are Asian right now. Asian Americans. But you know they say the greatest dividing line right now is not race, it's not sexual orientation, it's not religion. They say the greatest dividing line is political. Do you ever sit down and talk with somebody who thinks differently about politics than you? To put ourselves in that position. You know, Matthew, the tax collector, got to know Simon the Zealot. And Simon the Zealot got to know Matthew, the tax collector. And when you walk in the spirit of Christ's love, when you know you stand in the need of God's grace, and God's grace is offered to all, you start to look at each other different. And so third... I believe Jesus took these two incredibly different individuals and brought them together by giving them a common dream, a common goal to work for. Now, the goal they thought they were working for was the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel. But Jesus has been trying to say, no, I have a far bigger dream than that. It's the dream of changing the world, sharing God's message of his love and his grace to the world. That's what I want you to change. I love it when they're sitting there on Leonardo da Vinci's painting. What happens is Jesus has just made the announcement that he would be betrayed by one of them. Their world is about to be turned upside down. You have Thaddeus and it looks like he's about to slam his hand down like, how can this be? But then you, you have Matthew and he is both arms out with his palms up pointing back towards Jesus but he is looking at Simon and it's like he's saying, how can this be happening? What can we do? Simon and Matthew looking to one another. What can we do to help in this moment? You know, Arthur C. Brooks wrote his book, um, Love Your Enemies. Wendy and I are teaching that on a Wednesday night. Great book. I encourage you to read it. But in it, he talks about how there's been a lot of study going on. Studies that seem to imply, you know, we talk about we're all born a blank piece of paper, tabula rasa. We're born with nothing. We're a product of our environment. And some of that certainly is true. But nowadays, we're talking about a lot more genetics and the things that you bring to your birth that you already have innate values. What they're finding is they begin to interview people and do this research on thousands upon thousands of people. There seems to be five innate values that most human beings have. You still always have a sociopath or strong personality disorders. But most people, 
seem to have five traits that can be nurtured and encouraged. And the top two are fairness and compassion. That it seems like it doesn't matter the color of your skin or your religious beliefs. Most people understand fairness and compassion. Whenever you and I work together to deal with inequity and injustice, whenever we work together to lift the burdens of pain from someone else, you not only bless life, you also form community. I believe it's the kingdom of God. You find that you can work with people who are different from you when you're working for fairness and compassion. It does something to you. It brings us together. What if you and I would try to focus on we're going to find that thing we want to commit ourselves to? Where we work for fairness and, and compassion. It'll do something with the people that you are working with. It was Matthew, Simon. They wanted to see what they could do to help Jesus. They would ultimately be committed. How do we go into the world to share this message? When you come to know a name and a face and a story, you're a lot less prejudiced. When you, when you come to that moment that you understand you stand in the need of God's grace and God's grace is offered to everybody, you then find you can work with people who are different from you and it does something to create community. Father Greg Boyle has done an amazing thing in what he's created. He created what's called Homeboy Industries out in California. For 30 years now, he's been working with thousands of kids who are in gangs. It's estimated more than 85,000 youth are involved in gangs in L.A. And what he has done is to try to create a place where when a youth decides they want to get out, they can come and have the opportunity to be taught life skills. The first thing he did was he created a bakery where you can come and you are given a full-time job and you're there to be baking bread. And who are you baking bread with? People from other gangs. The people you used to hate and fight, you're working side by side to bake this bread. You have a common goal. You've come, you've made the choice, you want to get a different life. They have all kinds of services like tattoo removal, anger management, parenting. They now help thousands of kids a year. He learned, you can't make them do it, they have to choose. But if they choose, if you're there, you bring them all together. And you find that as they all are trying hard for a better life, it's something important happening. He tells a great story about a, a boy named Louie. He was 19 years old. It turns he had been very successful selling crack cocaine. But he became his biggest customer. And he finally found himself in such despair that he came to Father Greg and said, I, I need help. I need to go to rehab. They got him into rehab. He'd been there about a month when Father Greg got the word that Louie's younger brother had just killed himself. He was hopeless. He gave in to despair, and he took his own life. And Father Greg knew this was going to be a blow to Louis, but he went to Louis, and 
He told him what had happened. He said, I'll take you to the funeral. But I'm going to take you to the funeral, and then I'm going to bring you right back. And Louis said, I want to come right back. I like the feel of recovery. But on the day when Father Greg went to go pick him up, Louis was so excited, so animated. And he had had a dream about Father Greg and himself. And I want to read you, in Louis' own words, what he said. To Father Greg, I had a dream last night and you were in it. The two of us were in a darkened room. No lights whatsoever. No illuminated exit signs. No light creeping from under the door. Total darkness. We were not speaking, but I knew you were in the room with me. Then silently you pull a flashlight from your pocket and aim it steadily on the light switch across the room. I know that only I can turn the light switch on. I am grateful that you happen to have a flashlight. With great trepidation, I move slowly towards the light switch, following closely the guiding beam of light. I take a deep breath. I flip the switch on, and the room is flooded with light. And Louis began to sob. And the light is better than the darkness. It was as though he did not know this. And Father Greg would say, We cannot turn the light switch on for anyone, but we all own flashlights. With any luck, on any given day, we know where to aim them to help each person find their way. When you come to know those who are different, when you come to know you stand in the need of God's grace and it's grace offered for all, we're able to help each other to find our way. Christ called Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot and brought them together and they had a new normal. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.